We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Tis the season for big gatherings and plentiful offerings of delectable food and drink. There is a lot of joy in these festivities, but it can be stressful, too. For those who struggle with eating disorders, which is millions of Americans, holidays can be even more challenging as they and their loved ones navigate through the month of boisterous parties and an abundance of potlucks, banquets, and more. In a few minutes, we'll learn about misophonia, a condition in which aggravating sound, like people chewing or slurping, can set off a cascade of strong emotional and physiological reactions. First, joining us to talk about the prevalence of OSFED, which stands for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder, is Laurie Wallman. She's Regional Assistant Director and Site Director for the Renfrew Center, which offers treatment for eating disorders. Welcome to the show, Laurie. Thank you. Tell us about the Renfrew Center. So the Renfrew Center is an eating disorder facility that was started over 35 years ago with our primary location in Philadelphia. Since then, we have grown to cover 19 locations across the United States, providing individuals who identify as female with eating disorders and other co-occurring mental health disorders. And you offer in-treatment as well as day-treatment? Yes, we offer, depending on the location, we offer inpatient uh, residential in two uh, locations, one in Philadelphia and one in Florida, and then we have 17 non-residential. So what that means is we offer higher level of care, but individuals do not stay overnight. So we have a day treatment program and an intensive outpatient program. And in Maryland, your locations are in Towson and Bethesda, right? Correct. Break down for us what OSFED means, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. OSFED is the most common of all eating disorders and affects individuals of all ages, races, and genders. What OSFED is, is it's a a diagnosis that captures individuals who don't meet all of the criteria for one of the other more well-known eating disorders. So for example, you know, we know anorexia as an eating disorder where individuals restrict food intake, usually resulting in a significant weight loss that brings them below the normal range and medically compromising. What OSFED allows is for individuals who are restricting intake, have lost significant amount of weight, yet still fall within the average or a normal range based on their height and their growth charts, you know, where what they've been tracking. So what it really does is it allows us to have a diagnosis for individuals who don't meet all of the criteria, but have a lot of symptoms and behaviors that fit into some of those other well-known diagnoses. And I think you said that OSFED can affect people across genders, racial groups, ages, but are some groups of people more susceptible to OSFED? You know, I wouldn't really say that there is a particular group that is more susceptible. Uh, There are a lot of factors that contribute to eating disorders. There's a genetic component. There is environmental factors. Um, 
there are different influences in someone's life, whether it's peers, family, social media. So there are just a lot of components that really tie in together that determine whether or not someone is going to be more susceptible or um, more prone to developing an eating disorder. Describe some of the challenges people with eating disorders face at this time of year. Sure. So this time of year, as you had said earlier, uh, involves a lot of social gatherings, um, a lot of individuals oftentimes seeing people you haven't seen in a long period of time coming back together. Usually social gatherings are centered around food or that is a significant part of the get together. And for someone with an eating disorder, mealtime or the experience of eating is challenging in in and of itself. And then you're adding in these other factors of eating around other people, maybe people that you aren't as comfortable eating around, people making comments about the food, because we all know that we have been guilty of that from time to time, um, whether it's a comment of, well, I'm not going to take too much of that because you know that's a cheat food for me, or I better eat all of my vegetables so I can justify the dessert I'm gonna have after. And all of these comments are very innocent in nature when they're coming from someone, and yet oftentimes we don't think about how that can impact other individuals who might be struggling. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Laurie Wallman, Regional Assistant Director and Site Director for the Renfrew Center. We're talking about OSFED, other specified feeding and eating disorder, and the challenges it poses this time of year. What are some signs someone might be struggling with an eating disorder of of any type? So you might see a preoccupation with weight, food, calories, grams, dieting, oftentimes hearing comments about feeling fat despite what they actually look like or what their actual weight is. Um, a denying of feeling hungry, so not really interested in eating right now, I just ate earlier, Um, taking frequent trips to the bathroom after meals, or may notice some stain or discoloration on the teeth, and an expression of fear or completely refusing to eat in front of others. Those are some of the things that you might see, and not necessarily all of those in one individual. And do eating disorders tend to be diagnosed by the family doctor or is it more something that family members pick up on and and pursue? I would like to think that it's a team effort. So sometimes it can be something that a, a primary care physician will pick up on. I think oftentimes family members are noticing some of those behaviors ahead of time. You're seeing your doctor annually, maybe twice a year if something's going on. So, so much can happen during that time period. It's really the individuals that are spending more frequent time with someone that are going to pick up on some of those worrisome behaviors and notice that something seems off. So I would say hopefully the communication or collaboration between those two parties is what really prompts a closer look at what's going on. When someone has an eating disorder, how could it affect others in their lives? Well, the instant thing I can think of is just the the concern, right? So if you have a loved one that you can tell is struggling, you're going to be concerned for them. You're going to be confused or unsure of how you can provide support to them, what you can do to help them during this time. 
I think also for a lot of individuals that are trying to, to be that support or care for a loved one, there's this sense of tiptoeing around or walking on eggshells because you aren't sure what to say or how to respond or what might be helpful or hurtful. And then I think a lot of times people start to re-examine their own food beliefs and behaviors because oftentimes all of us might be engaging in something or have some thoughts or beliefs about good foods or bad foods and how we define it. And we don't really highlight that or pay attention to it until we notice that someone else is struggling. And then we self-reflect and realize, you know, what might be going on in our own lives as well. Well, can we dig into that a little? I mean, if 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 family members feel they're tiptoeing around what and don't know what to say, what should they say? Well, what I have discovered from many of the individuals that I have treated over the years is that really the best way to handle it is to let the individual that you're supporting know that you're there, um, validate their feelings, right? We're not always going to understand what they're feeling, and yet we can say that sounds really hard or this meal seems really challenging. Just really acknowledging that the experience they're having is real and then asking them, saying like, what would be helpful for you right now? What can I do to support you during this difficult time? And they may not always know the answer. Sometimes it's much easier to identify what doesn't work versus what does work. And I think that being able to start that conversation and to allow the person who's who's struggling with the eating disorder to kind of guide their supports makes it an, an easier opportunity for them to start to talk about what makes it so challenging. I take your point uh, that often someone struggling with an eating disorder doesn't knows more what doesn't work than what does. but. Are there some ways people with OSFED can cope with the challenges they encounter during the holidays? Yes, so I think that preparation is key. So really um, planning ahead, especially when you know that you're celebrating holidays and you're gonna be around a large group of people or large quantities of food. Um, And so that can involve discussing with someone how to manage any of those what we call fear foods so foods that are really challenging that individuals may try to steer away from how to manage that in the moment because you know you're kind of on the spot and all these people are around you and you have to to think quickly Um, identifying a support that they can sit with during the meal someone that understands what's going on that they know has been helpful to them in the past that can notice maybe Um, a little warning sign of like, I'm really having a hard time right now, or I need to take a break and like walk away from the table or the group. And then setting healthy boundaries. So really thinking about and maybe even role playing how to address a, a difficult conversation that comes up or redirect certain comments that are made to steer the the conversation in a different direction. This is so helpful. Thank you, Laurie. My pleasure. Laurie Wallman is Regional Assistant Director and Site Director for the Renfrew Center. We've been talking about OSFED, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder, and the challenges it poses during the holidays. We have more information at the On the Record page at wypr.org. 
Short break on the record. When we're back, why aggravating sounds of people chewing, slurping, or smacking can set off powerful emotional reactions for some people. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking today about the collision of holiday festivities with people's anxieties about them. We just heard about the Renfrew Center, which treats people for eating disorders and gives them tools to cope with those challenges. Now we're joined by Dr. Joseph McGuire. He's a clinical psychologist and researcher with a focus on childhood anxiety disorders, including misophonia, a condition in which irritating sounds like people chewing or slurping can trigger a strong emotional response. He is also an associate professor in child and adolescent psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. McGuire. Thank you so much for having me, Sheila. Talk more about misophonia. When is it typically diagnosed? So so misophonia is, is a relatively new condition that we're starting to learn more about. Uh, so we don't know as much as we might know about something like obsessive compulsive disorder or Tourette's disorder or anxiety disorders, uh, but we do know a couple things. So misophonia is a condition, like you said, that affects, you know, uh, brings about strong emotional responses and, and even behavioral responses in reaction to specific sounds or, or even kind of movement. So somebody's shaking their leg up and down. Uh, and it elicits a lot of distress. These symptoms uh, usually onset in childhood and adolescence, but it's really been mainly studied in adults. So we know young people are kind of suffering with this condition for quite some time. Um, so, you know, we don't have as much information about it as we want to, uh, but we do know, fortunately, it is treatable. So we've had uh, we've had a few families, you know, come through our program and we've been able to help them. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to do the same for, for many others in the future. Um, but it's a very, very debilitating condition. Um, there was one report recently highlighting that about 20% of the population actually experiences some symptoms of misophonia, maybe not necessarily uh, to the degree that it impairs uh, somebody coming on into treatment or where somebody might kind of go on and seek treatment for it. But but we do know that it's actually something that's present and particularly becomes a lot more salient in the holidays because in, oftentimes people report that the sounds or, or movements that bother them tend to make uh, tend to be stronger or, or worse when they're made by family members who know that they suffer from the condition. 
as much as 20%, and I had no idea. Does misophonia present with other conditions or disorders? uh, Absolutely. So most of the time when I'm meeting with patients and families, what will kind of come on up is people will will start to talk about what makes dinner time hard or what makes being around other people hard. And they might have suffered with anxiety for for a large part of their life. and, and then when I start asking, well, what is it about it? And they'll say, well, you know, going out to eat is hard because I hear people chewing and, and you know, it's not that bad. I can kind of ignore it or I have some coping strategies, but but it brings about a lot of distress and, and it makes it so much worse when, you know, my mom or my dad does it or my friend or my significant other. Um, and, and that's where really then you start to kind of provide some education about what misophonia is and, and also what it isn't. In terms of conditions that it often presents with anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, I know you just mentioned that um, you know the Renfrew, uh, you know people were on earlier, uh, eating disorders as well, along with tic disorders. So the reason I got to got into this line of research is because a lot of the patients that I work with also present with, with misophonia. So you know the sound of someone mindlessly tapping their fingers or chewing loudly can can drive me crazy too, but. The response of those with misophonia is is a lot more than that. Describe that to us. Right. So it's a it's a strong. So and I think that goes back to the point of twenty percent. These you know the irritatingness or bothersomeness or distress of some sounds is pretty common. But for individuals with misophonia, and particularly those who who come to seek treatment, it's so much more. So you might have somebody who you know can't be in the same room and has to leave. You might have somebody who has to wear earphones or earplugs at the dinner table because the sound of chewing absolutely paralyzes them and bothers them. For some people, they get really upset and, and have fits of rage and throw things. Um, you know, it gets for everybody. It kind of manifests in a little bit of a different way. Uh, but we know that that it's really hard for a lot of people to kind of cope, and it's as you can imagine, pretty disruptive for families. Because on one hand, you know, you 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 want to kind of have a family dinner. On one hand, you want to kind of have a family moment where everybody's watching, you know, a movie together. Um, but if it's really hard for, you know, your son or your daughter or, or your partner to be in the same room as you, then it's really now becoming a disabling condition um, where somebody can't be in that same room as somebody who may be sniffing a little bit louder or breathing a little bit louder or chewing a little bit louder. And you said the response is are emotional, but also can be behavioral. Right. So some people might experience emotions like anger, disgust, annoyance, frustration, irritability. Uh, And whenever you feel these strong emotions, there's also physiological responses. So people have, you know, elevated heart rates or perspiration or other kind of like things, responses you might think of as like an anxiety or or, or fear or panic response. Um, whenever we're facing things that are, you know, uncomfortable, that bring about distress, we often engage in avoidance. Uh, we try to leave the situation, which makes perfect sense on the surface. If there's something going on that, you know, I don't like, I'm going to leave. Uh, if I hear a sound in a room that I don't like that's buzzing or annoying me, I might kind of step out. It just gets a bit harder and causes a lot more disruption when that sound is, you know, a family member who's chewing. Uh, and I think that's where, where life gets a little bit harder for that individual uh, and that family because, you know, we have to eat. So in order for me to eat, I have to be around other people uh, if I'm in a family environment. And that's where the disruption occurs. 
That's Johns Hopkins clinical psychologist, professor, and researcher Dr. Joseph McGuire. On the record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about misophonia, when annoying sounds like lip-smacking or loud chewing incite strong emotional or even physical responses. How do you treat patients with misophonia? You know, so while we have ev- clear evidence-based treatments for, you know, anxiety disorders and obsessive-compulsive disorders and, and tic disorders, you know, the evidence base for treatments on misophonia is still in its nascent stages. Uh, but we do know a couple of things. Uh, we do know that, you know, one, even just providing information about the condition and letting people know the way they're feeling is is, is typical, is, is expected, makes a ton of sense. And it's not just something in their head. To building kind of tolerance uh, to these distressing sounds or distress tolerance, um, mindfulness and other kinds of strategies really do help. Learning to kind of control and regulate your emotions helps. Uh, and then what we do is we start you know, teaching people these skills and then help them to kind of get regain control of their life. Start going back into the situations like family dinner or being around friends that maybe they were hard to be around and start to kind of engage in those things that they want to do because they want to do them and learn that they can tolerate even some of those really uncomfortable and distressing sounds. You know, there was somebody I was talking to a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about how how hard it was to take tests at school because there was a ticking of the clock and whenever they were alone in that um, in that school or classroom, they would hear the ticking and it would just distract them and be really, really hard to kind of focus. So we talked a little bit about, you know, tolerating that and even kind of learning to use, you know, mindfulness skills and, and abilities to kind of regulate their breath and being able to take tests in those moments. And over time, what happened is they got better control over their emotional responses. Now, that probably didn't make the ticking of the clock any less annoying, but it helped empower them to kind of put what they needed to get done first. Does the condition ever go away, or or does someone deal with misophonia for life? We don't know. That's a really, really good question. And I and I typically with with anxiety, with OCD, and with tic disorders, I would be able to cite a study or, or tell you that we wrote a paper on it. We don't know at this moment in time. We do know a couple things. We know the condition onsets in childhood. Uh, we do know that uh, with treatment, it can get better. Uh, but that's really one of the reasons we're doing a research study is to really start to understand, you know, what brings it about. How do we make treatments better? And and over time, really, what's the kind of longitudinal course? You know, will somebody in childhood continue to have symptoms of misophonia into adulthood? Or is this something with appropriate treatment, it can get better and, and really no longer be a problem? Um, so I wish I had a clear answer for you, but I can at least say that, that we're working to find one. I can imagine um, that people around folks with misophonia may lose patience. What what do you think is important for the rest of us to know about misophonia? I think there's a couple of things. One, that the distress that people feel from misophonia is real. Um, and, and I think taking that kind of seriously uh, and being considerate of it. Now, does that mean you know, we have to kind of change everything just in that moment. You know, I think we have to kind of think about, um, you know, how we can best support somebody 
in the long term to build resilience. So if somebody's asking us to, you know, chew with our mouth closed or, 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 you know, whatever is kind of going on in that moment, I think being respectful and kind of mindful about that. Um, but if somebody's wearing earphones to the table or kind of earplugs, I think in that moment saying, hey, you know, I acknowledge that this might be hard, but let's also work together to overcome it. Um, so I think understanding that it's a, a condition that's there uh, and also thinking a little bit about how we can you know, work together, whether it's, you know, your your friend, your family member, or your loved one, and how we can kind of help bring healing and strength. I don't know if I fully answered the question, but I tried, Sheila. It gave me a lot to think about. Dr. McGuire, thanks for talking to us about this. I appreciate it, and thank you. Dr. Joseph McGuire is a clinical psychologist and researcher with a focus on childhood anxiety disorders. He's also associate professor in child and adolescent psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We've been talking about misophonia and how to treat the condition that triggers strong emotional responses in people when they hear irritating, repetitive sounds. We have more information at the On the Record page at WYP. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.